Morning, Grace Community Church. It's great to be with you, and it is great to still have my voice. I taught a session up at the Biblical Counseling in Granbury there on Friday night, four yesterday. I don't know who scheduled that, but four in a row yesterday, so it is a small miracle that I still have my voice this morning. Let's continue to worship together by opening our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. For the past three weeks, every morning, almost every morning, almost every morning, I have devoted, dedicated five seconds to pray for you. That is how much I love you. Five seconds each morning to intercede on your behalf. And here is what I have prayed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I hope by the time we are finished this morning, you will be convinced that those are five seconds well spent. Five seconds in prayer. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Undoubtedly, that prayer meant a lot to the Thessalonian believers. I think we can affirm that for at least three reasons. According to chapter 1, they were afflicted. You might remember it was the Apostle Paul who established this church in Thessalonica. And no sooner has he preached the gospel, no sooner does he witness converts, that he becomes the object of hostility, open opposition, persecution in his absence. The enemies of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ have turned their attention to this newfounded church. They're now focusing on the Thessalonian believers, and they are in the midst of a storm, and they are suffering. They are afflicted, and what this prayer must have meant to them, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. But there's another reason why I'm sure this prayer was precious to them. According to the second chapter, they were alarmed. There were a bunch of conspiracy theorists in the church of Thessalonica. A few suffering from apocalyptic fever. And they say the day of the Lord has already come. We're in the end times. And the church is unsettled. The church is exasperated. People are confused at what's going on. And then they hear this simple prayer from the lips of the Apostle Paul. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. And to the steadfastness of Christ. And there's a third reason why this prayer undoubtedly meant a great deal to the church at Thessalonica. It is because they were not only afflicted, they were not only alarmed. According to the third chapter, they were agitated. Agitated how? There are some in the church who had grown idle. We don't know why. But they were refusing to work. And so there was this mismatch between doctrine and conduct. This mismatch between creed and behavior. 
and it has upset the church. And some in the church, sincere believers, they're growing weary, Paul says, growing weary in doing good because of others in the church who are not living in a manner consistent with profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what this prayer must have meant to them, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. So my hope, my expectation is that by the time we walk out of here this morning, this simple five-second prayer will make a great deal to us. Years ago, uh, oh, 23, 24 years ago, Allison and I were driving in our little Fiat Punto in the north of Portugal on the motorway, on the highway, and uh, suddenly the dark storm clouds gathered, and uh, the sky just grew pitch black. And the clouds opened, torrential downpour. I've never seen anything like it in my life. There we are on the highway. Everyone has slowed to a crawl. A lot of people have pulled over to the side of the highway and just stopped. Everybody's lights blinking, flashing. You couldn't see anything in front of you. And then as quickly as it started, it stopped. And those clouds began to break, and these beams, these rays of sunshine began to pierce and penetrate the darkness. That is what I want this prayer to be for us. This is what I want this prayer to be to us this day. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. To that end, five observations. That's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to proceed. Five observations concerning this prayer that I trust will serve us well for our good and for God's glory. Here is the first observation. The heart is the fountain of life. In Proverbs 4.23, we read the following. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of of life. When Solomon uses that word heart, when Paul uses the word heart in our text, he is not referring to that physical organ in our chest that pumps blood throughout our bodies. That is not what is in view. He's referring really to the soul and all of its constituent parts. He's referring to the mind and to the will and to the seat of our personality. And the point Solomon is making there in Proverbs 4.23 is simply this. Oh, the heart is exceedingly valuable. Keep your heart with all vigilance. You put out your garbage on a Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. I've forgotten what it is here in Glenrose. You put it out on some night, right? You don't pull up a lawn chair, sit down and watch over it during the night. Why? You put it to the end of the curb and you kiss it goodbye. You don't want to see it again. It is gone. Why? It is worthless. We only guard what is valuable. We only keep watcher, watch over things that we highly esteem and value. Oh, keep your heart with all vigilance. Why is it so valuable? For from it flow the springs of life. And so you imagine a spring in the ground, you know what it is, an opening in the ground, and the underground water has arisen to the surface. It is flowing forth from that opening, 
And as the water comes out of the spring, it forms a pool or it forms a stream. You're with me. What happens if you plug, stop the spring? The pool, the stream dries up. What happens if you poison the spring? The stream is also poisoned. What happens at the spring determines what happens with the stream or the pool of water. So too with all of life, my friends. This is a basic lesson, and yet it, many of us miss it. A most fundamental lesson. All of life is dictated by the heart. The heart determines. The health of the heart determines all of life. What we do, what we say, the choices we make, the decisions we make, all of life, therefore, flows from the heart, which is, in the language of Solomon, the very springs of life. We need to be clear on that observation. Observation number one, that the heart is the fountain of life. Here is observation number two. Our hearts need direction. That's obvious. That's why Paul prays for it. May the Lord direct your hearts. Why does our heart need direction? We find the answer in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We have a twofold problem. It's a double whammy. We have these two strikes against us. In the first instance, in the first case, the heart is desperately sick. When God created man in the garden, he created him upright. He created Adam and Eve, fashioned them in his image. And they reflected his likeness, his holiness, and his righteousness. But when the devil came and he tempted Adam and Eve, and there was that promise made, if when you eat that fruit, if you reach out, touch it, grab it, and eat it, in that moment, in that day, you will be like God. And in that very moment, Adam and Eve fell. Adam and Eve fell from God to themselves, whereby the most fundamental, basic operating principle in their lives became what? Self-love. Love of self. And each of us has inherited that basic inclination of heart from our forefathers, Adam and Eve, whereby we are riddled with self-love. It inclines us in a certain direction, doesn't it? And so Thursday, as we made our way to the airport in the morning, we're driving on the 401. Some of you made that drive recently. Not the most delightful drive, but there we were on the 401 highway. And uh, just breezing along. And I could feel ever so slightly that if I let go of the steering wheel, the car started to drift a bit to the right. Why? The alignment is off. So when I take it in next month and it's time to put the snow tires on, I'm going to ask them to do what? Check the alignment, fix that, straighten that thing out. Friends, our alignment is off as human beings. Our alignment is off. We bend a certain way. We're inclined a certain way by nature because we have this basic operating system that resides deep within the heart. And it is this 
self-love. That is the first strike against us, but it's not all that Jeremiah says. Yes, the heart is desperately sick, but there's a second problem. The heart is deceitful above all things. This is, this is terrible. Not only is the heart wicked, not only is the heart desperately sick, but the heart deceives itself into thinking all is well. The screw tape letters, perhaps you've read those by C.S. Lewis. I really should have done my homework and checked them. It's been a while since I read them, but I think it goes something like this. In that book, there's a conversation then between the devil and an apprentice. And he is training him how to tempt people, how to deceive people. And at some point in the screw tape letters, one demon stands forth and says, well, I'll go. I'll go and I'll deceive people. And here's how I will deceive them. I will tell them there is no heaven. And the devil says, yeah, you go. You'll deceive some. Not bad. Another demon stands forth and says, well, no, I got a better idea. I'll go and I'll tell people there's no hell. Ooh, even better. That will lure people into a false sense of security and deceive them. But then a third demon stands up and says this. No, I'll go and I'll tell them there's no hurry. To which the devil gleefully sends him and commends him. You will deceive millions. If C.S. Lewis were here, I'd say, I think you got it a bit wrong in our day. It's not about there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no hurry. The greatest deception today is this. There's no problem. There's no problem. It's all good. The heart is deceitful. And the heart deceives us into thinking all is well when in actual fact it is desperately sick. We live in a house of mirrors. And our self-perception is completely twisted and out of whack because we suffer from this twofold problem, a desperate sickness, self-love. And a heart that is deceitful above all things. Oh, but praise God, the new birth, right? Regeneration. What happens? By the Holy Spirit, a new principle is implanted within our hearts. A new principle is a principle of love for God. The old principle doesn't go away. Self-love is still there. It is alive and well. But there is now this new inclination, this new impulse, and it's love for God. And now as Christians, what we basically have are these semi-intact, two semi-intact motivational systems. And it is this battle between the flesh and the spirit. It is this battle between love of self and love of God. And this is why as believers, our hearts must be directed. May the Lord direct your hearts. Oh, we stand in such need of direction because that semi-intact motivational system is still alive and well in us. And we struggle with self-love and the flesh rears its ugly head. And at times it quenches our love for God. And here we are engaged in this battle and therefore stand in desperate need for direction. Now be clear as to the verb, direct. Don't think in terms of giving directions to a point of destination. 
So someone comes to me after the meeting and says, can you direct my way to Big Cup? Well, down you go the highway, right? Yeah, this way. When you see the traffic light, it's still there, right? On your left, there it is, the Big Cup. Don't think of the verb like that. It's not simply directing us from point A to point B. The verb, to direct, in this context, it means to move obstacles out of the way. That's how we need direction. We need obstacles moved out of the way. There was a college football game a couple of weeks ago. There was a team from Texas that shall remain nameless and a team from Alabama, which I just named. After the game, I, I had to watch about three or four times because I'm sorry, it was, a, I, it was a bit, it was just funny to watch. There's this Coach Saban, there he is with his police escort. And they're making their way off the field. And you have all these things they call Aggies coming onto the field, just running everywhere. And this police escort just barreled right through them. And you've got these bodies flying everywhere. That's the idea behind this verb. May the Lord direct our hearts. Why? Because we got stuff in the way. There is stuff that needs to be ripped up, torn out, right? There are impediments obstacles that are preventing us from what? Loving God as we should. You be careful when you pray this prayer. I might not have done you any favors. Well, I really did do you a long-term favor praying this for the past three weeks. You have no idea what the Lord might have to tear down, tear up, tear out to answer this prayer. If he is to direct our hearts, where? To the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. It brings us to the third observation. The Lord directs our hearts where? I just stated it. To the love of God. 1 John 4, 8, 3 beautiful words. God is love. He is love because he is a triune being. That our great God the blessed and only sovereign. He dwells, he inhabits one indivisible point called eternity. He is beyond all time and space. And this one God eternally is Father, Son, Spirit. There are these three eternal relations who are the one God. There is but one being. There is but one substance. There is but one will, one power, one wisdom, one life. And yet this one God is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. That is what we are proclaiming when we say God is love. We are proclaiming that this is who he is eternally. That eternally God is love because the Father loves the Son and the Spirit. And the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And Paul is praying. Paul is pleading with the Almighty. May the Lord direct our hearts to the love of God. May he direct our hearts to the love of the Father. And may we really understand that he set, as believers, as his people, he set his love upon us. 
before the foundation of the world. And so as Charles had and Spurgeon walked in the countryside with a friend, and it was a blustery day, and they came upon a barn with a weather vane on top, and there it was on this weather vane, God is love. And the weather vane was spinning every which way as the wind howled over top. And Spurgeon's friend took hold of his shoulder and said, look up there, Charles. God is love. No matter which way the wind blows, God is love. And he set that love upon us before the foundation of the world. Oh, may the Lord direct our hearts to the love of the Son. Because you see, it is the Son who reveals the Father's love. It is the son we read in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 who loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And we can follow his footsteps as he enters the garden of Gethsemane. And we can see him hunched over groveling on the ground. And we can almost touch those great drops of sweat like blood falling from him. As he agonizes before his father, we see him as he meekly goes as a lamb led to the slaughter and willingly submits himself to that rabble that comes to arrest him in the night. We see him standing silent, not uttering a word before his accusers, before Pilate. And we see him ascending the cross, gasping his last. Suspended between heaven and earth, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord Jesus, who gave himself for us to the Father as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Oh, the revelation of God's love. But thirdly, may the Lord lead us, may he lead our hearts uh, to the love of the Spirit, to the Spirit. Why? Because you just see, as you see, as the Father loved does before the foundation of the world and set his love upon us, and as the Son reveals the Father's love, so it is the Spirit who assures us of the Father's love. And so we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, that the love of God has been poured out where? Note the word. The love of God has been poured out where? In our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Well, what does that mean? The love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is the Holy Spirit who makes the word of God come alive to us. And it's the Holy Spirit who makes the love of God come alive to us. Thomas Goodwin, he illustrated this centuries ago, I think in unparalleled fashion. He asks us to imagine a little boy who's out for a stroll with his father. And there they are in the countryside making their way down the beaten path. And there's the father just going merrily along. And there's his little son beside him, three, four, five years of age. His son knows he loves him. His son really has no doubt as to his father's love for him. His father provides for him. His father protects him. He watches over him. He disciplines him as necessary. He knows his father loves him. But suddenly his father stops, grabs him around the waist, 
picks him up to himself in a bear hug, squeezes him tight, kisses him on the forehead, and whispers in his ear, I love you, son. What's happened? Does that little boy now have new information? There's no new information. He doesn't know anything now that he didn't know before. What has changed? Something has changed experientially in that moment whereby he knows the love of the Father, he is assured of the love of the Father. Oh, that is the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit of God who makes the Word of God come alive. And as John Owen put it so well, and I think it's there in your notes, I hope I include it in your notes. John Owen, who wrote a long time ago, when God is seen as a father filled with love, the soul is filled with love to God in return. Oh, we love him as we consider his majesty, his incomparable being and power and wisdom and goodness. Oh, we love him as we contemplate his works the mystery of providence, his creation and care over all things, the great and wondrous plan of redemption. Oh, we love him as we ponder what it means to be adopted into his family as a son, what it means to be justified through faith, what it means to be the heir of all things. And when we see him as such, as a father filled with love. Oh, that is when the Lord directs us into his love. And the soul is filled with love to God in return. I submit to you, this is the only thing that will soften the hard heart. Do you have a hard heart? I'm guessing there are a few here who do. The heart has just been hardened. You've been negligent in your walk. You've been playing and toying with sin, maybe even habitual sin. You've been unforgiving in your attitude towards your brothers and sisters. And just over time, maybe just the past week, maybe the past month, oh God forbid, maybe the past year, your heart has grown increasingly hard. Oh, may the Lord direct your heart to the love of God. It's the only thing that will soften it. You're going to have to use your imagination here, but come with me. It's the end of February, and you're in southern Ontario, a place called Cambridge, and you're in Walmart parking lot, all right? What's been happening since November? Whenever the snow falls, the plows come out to plow the parking lot, and they heap it all in the middle of the parking lot, and this mountain of snow and ice, there it is. End of February is just, it is almost awe-inspiring. This pile of snow and ice, I don't know how many feet high, and you think to yourself, that is now a permanent structure. That thing's never going anywhere. It's going to be here for years to come. But March rolls around. Maybe the end of March, if you're fortunate, more likely April, the temperatures climb above zero. And the sun gets a little stronger in the noonday sky. And it begins to beat down upon that pile of ice and snow. And right there before your eyes, you can almost watch it melting as the streams of water flow from it. My friend, 
Do you have a hard heart? There's only one thing that can help you. May the Lord direct your heart to the love of God. And may you be melted in his presence as you consider the love of a triune being. Oh, the father who loves us. The son who reveals the father's love. And the spirit who assures us of the father's love. Not only does this love soften the hard heart. It comforts the troubled heart. And so for all I know, you're something akin to the gulf this day. The gulf when one of those hurricanes, one of those storms pass over in August, September. And that water in the gulf is just churned. And the waves, I don't know how high they are, but it's tumultuous. And there you are sitting right now right here and you take stock and you think to yourself that's my heart tumultuous just this storm raging with it troubled agitated why oh there are innumerable reasons you're spending too much time listening to the talking heads spending too much time on social media spending too much time in the headlines or maybe you're spending too much time with the question, what if? What if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? And you've worked yourself up into a frenzy. And all bent out of shape and troubled and agitated. Oh, may the Lord direct your heart to the love of God. It is the love of God that softens the hard heart. It is the love of God that comforts the troubled heart. And it is the love of God that strengthens the weary heart. I don't know what the Paluxy was like this past August, but any August I was here, the Paluxy was what by mid-August? Just this dried, cracked riverbed with maybe a puddle here or there. Is that your heart this morning? Just dry and cracked, just worn out, just weary. It might be grief. It might be pain. It might be loss. Oh, my friend, are you yearning for an oasis in the midst of the desert? Are you yearning for those springtime showers and rainfall? Here it is. May the Lord direct your heart to the love of God. That is the third observation. Here's the fourth observation. May the Lord direct our hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. It is described for us beautifully in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, before Christ, for the joy, the reward that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. I love the word steadfast. There's something about it, isn't there? Something just so suggestive about it. Steadfast. Conveys the idea of immovability. It's used to describe something that is fixed, solid, stable. And so we get those torrential downpours in April, May. And it exceeds the banks of the Paluxy. And it hides the big rocks from view. But finally the rain stops. The swell, it makes its way down. And what reappears? Right where they always were. Those big rocks. Massive. Immovable. 
steady. This is what's in view here. May the Lord lead your heart to the steadfastness of Christ. He's immovable. Oh, he was immovable as he faced temptation, wasn't he? No sooner has he emerged from the baptismal waters. No sooner has he heard his father's beautiful declaration, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that the spirit then leads him immediately into the wilderness. There he fasts for 40 days. And the devil comes to him in all his ugliness, but the Lord Jesus withstands it all immovable, steadfast in the face of temptation. You think of the opposition. You think of the rejection. It's the Pharisees over here, the scribes here, the Sadducees here. And the questions and the accusations are coming at him, constantly bombarded. And through it all, never losing focus. Through it all, never veering from his purpose. Through it all, demonstrating such steadfastness and singularity of purpose. Oh, you think of his steadfast when it comes to just the obstinacy and just the slow, oh, the slowness of the disciples to understand. The indifference of the multitudes. Oh, they get excited when they see what they perceive to be a few tricks with fish and bread, but they're not really interested in him. But his steadfastness as he sets his face as a flint. He knows it's going to be struck against and the sparks will fly. And his steadfastness, unparalleled fashion, as he climbs Calvary's cross. And for the joy that was set before him, he endures it, despising the shame. Hebrews 12, verse 2. How does the verse begin? Come on now. How does it begin? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. Oh, may the Lord direct our hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. May he fix the eyes of faith upon him. And by gazing on him, and by having our faith in him strengthened, we realize that we too can be steadfast because Christ who has gone before us has endured the cross. And despised the shame. How important this is. As some of us are struggling with the instability arising from unsettling circumstances. The instability arising from unsettling circumstances. I don't want to be too dramatic. But friends, we live in revolutionary times. We really do. The change around us is it's unbelievable. Makes the head spin. Things that were unimaginable 10 years ago, five years ago, suddenly normalized and occurring right before our very eyes. And how unsettling it is, isn't it? And it just throws us off balance. And this alarming change, it just it can create confusion. It can create this worry and anxiety. And I sometimes wonder, do you remember Satan? He, he, he requested of the Lord Jesus that he might be able to sift Peter like wheat. Do you remember that? I'm becoming increasingly convinced. I'm not there yet to declare it dogmatically. But I'm becoming increasingly convinced that 
Satan is about to sift God's people here in North America. We're about to be sifted, folks. And it's going to be exceedingly unstable as we're tossed here and there and confusing. Oh, may the Lord direct our hearts to the steadfastness of Christ so that we are immovable, fixed, solid, stable. Oh, we're going to need this steadfastness as we deal with the instability arising from overwhelming temptation. Our heart still struggles with that self-love. And the heart, let's face it, it is like a midsummer field of grass, isn't it? And the slightest spark can set it ablaze. And we're living now in such decadent days and bumping bombarded, bombarded in our day and witnessing at an alarming rate uh, the number of professing believers abandoning the faith, the number of professing believers turning their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ, the number of professing believers who still dare to, to claim the name of Christ and yet are increasingly living degenerate lives, perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. And oh, it creates such this instability within. Oh, may the Lord direct our hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. And we're going to need it. And perhaps some of you need it right now. As we deal with the instability that arises from crippling disappointments. Overwhelming grief. Broken relationships. Ailing body and weakening mind. May the Lord direct your hearts to the steadfastness of Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, the reward, endured the cross and despised the shame. That is the fourth observation. And here is my last, the fifth. It's a good one. The Lord answers prayers. Amen. We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, but there is a statement exceedingly valuable tucked away back in the third verse. It is this. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. There's a scene, most of you will recall this from your Sunday school days. The Israelites have left the land of Canaan. They're making their way to the promised land. The Amalekites come out to meet them in battle. And Moses climbs up the hill and he has a view of that battle as it unfolds before him. And he lifts up his hands in a posture of prayer. And as his hands are lifted up, the Israelites prevail. He grows weary. The hands go down. What happens? The Amalekites begin to prevail. And so Ur and Aaron are close by. And they stand on either side of Moses and they lift up his hands. They raise them up in that posture of prayer. And we read in Exodus 17, 12, that Moses' hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Steady is the same Hebrew word for faithful. To be faithful is to be steady. To be faithful is to be trustworthy. Oh, when our God is said to be faithful, it means he is utterly trustworthy. 
As the hymn writer put it centuries ago, the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yes and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are, nor all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego, or sever what? The soul, the heart, from his love. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Our Heavenly Father, this is our prayer. That you would look mercifully upon us this day. We who are but dust, and yet we who are redeemed with the precious blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, may you look mercifully upon us. And whatever our lot might be this day, may you direct our hearts indeed. May you remove whatever obstacles necessary. That truly our appreciation of your love, Christ's steadfastness, might be heightened. And may this be for our eternal good. And may it resonate and resound for your eternal glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we do pray. Amen.